morning. I invite you to turn with me to Luke 23. Luke 23, the verses 32 to 43, I believe, will be on the screen. But if you do want to uh, open the scriptures, um, I'll point out some things that stand in context before I read, beginning at verse 32. You already heard part of this uh, chapter expounded last week with the first word from the cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. There's a whole crowd of people mocking Jesus. But if you go back to uh, verse 14 or 13, you'll see that Pilate, who was the Roman governor, plays a role and he has come to a conclusion about Jesus. He says, I find no basis for your charges against him. And then he has an interesting little statement. Neither has Herod. We'll come back to that. And then, of course, we get the, the story that we'll have in focus this morning about the thief on the cross who says, uh, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But he also says to his companion criminal on the cross, this is an innocent man. And then in verse 47 of chapter 23, you have the story of the centurion who has been in charge of the crucifixion detail, we think. And he, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And then if you go over to verse 50, you have a reference to a man named Joseph. He's Joseph of Arimathea, and he is part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And his, his conclusion is wrapped up in these words of Luke. Joseph, who had not consented to their decision and action. And from other places, we also know that Joseph is accompanied by Nicodemus, who had visited Jesus in the night and talked to Jesus about um, the concept of being born again. So that's a broad context. I hope I'll tie all those strings together in a little while. Beginning at verse 32, we'll read. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Words. Words are important. A little boy runs out of church. He stumbles. I'm okay. Made all of you laugh. Words instruct children. You know this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then they finish it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Words are not wasted. Words are powerful. You see a stranger and you say, hi. And you create space for that stranger to respond. You create space for you to use words to share what was on your heart, to let you know or let another know what you had just experienced. We sang the words of Nicaea, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, our song shall rise to you. I listened to a blog not so long ago by John Ortberg, who said, it's probably really important for you to begin the day with a positive frame of mind. And so he encouraged, and I am trying to practice, that when I get up early first thing in the morning, I sit on my mattress and I use words and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it and be glad. And then Ortberg did something really nice. He added the word, somehow. Because somehow is important. Days don't always go the way you like. Events don't always unfold in a positive way. You experience pain and sorrow and loss. Jesus had pleaded with the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But the Father said, no, it wasn't possible. And so Jesus endured the cross. And what was he enduring? The sneers of leaders, the mockery of soldiers, the stripping away of his possessions, his cloak, his clothes couldn't even go to his mother who was standing at the cross. The mockery of those who were experiencing the same thing as he was, namely to be executed. And if you go to Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 15, you will find in the stories as Matthew and Mark record them that both criminals initially mock Jesus. They heap insults and abuse on him. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Somehow, somehow I will dredge up something that will help me to see that there is hope and meaning in life. And then a change takes place. One of the thieves on the cross 
with Jesus, surrounding him, one on his right, one on his left, with a sign above his head, mockery, this is the king of the Jews. Ha, ha, ha. Look at, look at this guy. Some king he is. One of the thieves changes his understanding. Why? How? We aren't told. We can speculate, and that's all it is. It's speculation. No miracle had happened yet. There wasn't darkness yet at noon. Jesus was crucified around 9 in the morning, and from 9 to high noon, he, he suffers along with the others on the crosses. At noon, it goes dark. He cries out, into your hand I commit my spirit, but that hasn't happened yet either. The words of the centurion that we made reference to hadn't happened yet either. Surely this was a righteous man. What caused this thief to change his mind? There's only one thing that stands in the context of it, and that is the first word of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What they're doing is an injustice. They are crucifying an innocent man. But that innocent man had been sent with a purpose. His coming was not a fluke. It wasn't accidental. It had been planned out of eternity. And in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, God made a promise. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He was saying to Satan, the deceiver, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He, you'll cry, bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And, and now looking back, we understand those are the words of gospel. Those are the words of promise that a savior would come, a Messiah, an anointed one. And now Jesus is here. And in the words of Isaiah, he is numbered amongst the transgressors. On his right and on his left are thieves, criminals, transgressors. And to all those around him, all those sneering and mocking and deriding people, Jesus extends a word of grace. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It seems that those words have penetrated the heart of one of these thieves. Hebrews chapter 5, written after these events, of course, but given to us. Hebrews chapter 5 says that the word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, with the ability to separate bone from marrow. We do that quite easily now. But in the day that it was written, those things were almost inseparable. But the word of God says the writer of Hebrews, is powerful and will separate bone from marrow. 
And suddenly it seems that something has happened in the heart of one of these thieves. And he begins to speak. He says to his fellow criminal on the cross, Do you not fear God? This is not fear in the sense of respect. You know, Pastor Liz is up here, and the kids come around her, and she teaches them, she's patient with them, she can sometimes probably say to them, uh, now you have to sit still and be quiet and don't interrupt. And there is a sense of respect. You could say a sense of fear. It is respect. But the word for fear here is the word phobia. That is the fear of a spider. <laughs> I don't care about spiders. I don't like snakes. That's the fear of snakes. Or the fear that comes from being in an enclosed space and you, you feel trapped. Or the fear of a student who is being sent to the principal's office. Or the fear of a child whose parent is being called by the police officer. I drove the tractor on the road when I was a kid at age 14 and I got pulled over by a police officer. And then he said, well, I'll go talk to your mother. I avoided her for the rest of the day. I had fear. My father said, go back to the field, it needs to be dissed again. I had even greater fear of my mother. She never said a word. But you know the type of fear. Do you not fear God? Why would he be afraid? Well, he is a thief. And I think we understand, need to understand the idea of theft here a little bit differently than what we might think. We often think about theft as, you know, taking somebody else's stuff, object, and taking it from that person and putting it in our own pocket and say, now it's mine. We focus on stuff. But I think this person robbed God of his rightful possession, namely his own life. The thief had taken the life God had given him, and it was a life called to service. He is presumably a Jew, a person of, of the people of God who was called to love God above all and love neighbor as self. He has refused to surrender that life and now has indulged it for his own purpose. To abuse, to warrant the reality of being executed. And when he is executed, when he comes to die, he will stand before the eternal judge of the universe who will look at the record. And the reality will be eternal separation. An agony where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you not fear God? And then he no longer 
engages in what we so often engage in when we are confronted by our own behavior. We deny. We think, ah, it's not such a big deal. No, this man no longer denies. He says, we are here justly. We are here because we have earned this sentence. But this man, this one with a label above his head, the king of the Jews, he is innocent. And the thief, you know, stands in good company as far as that conclusion is concerned. Pilate says, I, I find no basis for the charge you bring against him. And oh yeah, by the way, your king Herod, he didn't find any basis either. And the centurion later will say, this was a righteous man. And Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, did not agree with what had happened. And we know from elsewhere that Nicodemus didn't agree either. And they would take the body of Jesus later and bury it in Joseph's sepulcher and tomb. The thief on the cross is not alone in his judgment. Even Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, threw the money of betrayal back and says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Do you not fear God? It's a question that I think all of us need to ponder. Do I fear God? Am I certain that when I stand before God that there will be space created for me in heaven to be with him in his kingdom for eternity? And the answer to that question all depends on the relationship that I have with Jesus. It all depends on the relationship you have with Jesus. Is there space in your life for Jesus? Is there space in Jesus' kingdom for you? And this thief on the cross no longer talks to his fellow criminal. He now shifts his focus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, he had every reason to avoid talking to Jesus. But he did not let the crowd, with all its sneering and all its mockery, keep him from Jesus. We often allow other people, when they sneer, you know, believing in God that's narrow-minded, that, that's ignorant, that's just uninformed. And we say, oh, okay. And, and we let the crowd keep us from Jesus. Or, nor did, did the thief let his life of crime keep him from Jesus. And we often respond to Jesus with a black and white set, say, well, I can never be good enough. Well, yeah, you're right. You can never be good enough. But will you let your sin keep you from Jesus? Nor did he let his cross, his circumstance, 
which would have focused his mind because it would have hurt keep him from Jesus. Neither the crowd, nor his life of crime, nor his present circumstances kept him from Jesus. And that is something worthwhile for all of us to ponder and to think about. What is keeping me from Jesus? And this thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Notice that he didn't say, Jesus, remember me if you come into your kingdom. No, Jesus, remember me when. He was certain. How did he know all of this? We don't know. Again, we can speculate. He was a Jew, we assume. Jesus had been speaking and crowds of people had listening, been listening. Was he amongst them? Perhaps. But then again, he was a criminal and he was let out to be executed. So he probably wasn't in the immediate crowd of Palm Sunday in the days thereafter. He was probably in a prison cell. Perhaps with Barabbas, who Pilate had tried to pawn as a bargaining chip. Do you want Barabbas, the insurrectionist, or do you want Jesus, the one who healed the dead, fed the hungry, or raised the dead and fed the hungry and healed the sick? Who do you want? And I think he counted on them, saying, well, we want Jesus, we don't want Barabbas. But they, they followed the leaders of the lead, the lead of the leaders, and they said, well, we want Barabbas. Had this person been in the jail cell with Barabbas? Had he talked to Barabbas before he was released? Had Barabbas given him some information about this Jesus of Nazareth? We don't know. What we do know is that he had come to understand that Jesus was an innocent person worthy of attention. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus responds, surely you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Words of grace. Now, what, how do we define grace? I mean, we sing about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, what do we mean by grace? Well, let me just share three, three understandings. You can take the word grace, G-R-A-C-E, and put the following words with it. God's riches at Christ's expense. God, G, riches, R, A, at, C, Christ's expense. Grace, God giving you what you need, but you do not deserve. It's a wonderful definition. But I think Philip Yancey gets it better in his book, What is So Amazing About Grace? And if you have not read Yancey's book, What is So Amazing About Grace? It is one that you ought to read. And this is his definition. Grace means... That there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more. 
And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. Ponder that for a moment. Grace means that there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Today, you will be with me in paradise. An absolute word of grace, an absolute word of assurance. But let's just unpack it a little bit more. Notice the immediacy. Today, when you die, you will be with me. Not you will see me at some place in the distance. No, you will be with me because Jesus plays in heaven the role of our advocate. He sits beside us at the defendant's table. And when the judge who is his father speaks, Jesus says, Father, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. You will be with me. You will not just simply see me, but I'll be with you and I will defend you and speak up for you because when you are in Christ, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Or to put it in the words of Pastor Liz to the kids, when you are in Christ, there is space for you with God. There's space for you. Yes, even you. But notice that sense of immediacy has a, has a deeper level of meaning as well. You, you won't in, be engaged in soul sleep as some people teach. Nor do you have to go to purgatory, as some people or some denominations teach, for a period of cleansing. No, when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Ponder that. And so Jesus comes and speaks to this thief on the cross. And the thief on the cross has engaged momentarily in what we all need to engage in. Needs to go through a change of heart and a change of mind that has led to a change of direction. Needs to repent. He had mocked, but now he had second thoughts. And he come to a different conclusion. But notice something in terms of this. There is that immediacy, this overwhelming, wonderful embrace of grace. There was no chance for this man to be baptized. There was no chance for this man to come to the consistory and go through a profession of faith interview. 
There was no chance for this man to come in front of Willoughby Church and give his testimony. There was no chance for this man to come and say, I will remember Jesus at the table as I break bread and drink wine. There was no chance for this man to go to his father and to his mother, to his brothers and sisters, to whom he no doubt was an embarrassment, and to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. The only thing that he could still do was die. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So what lessons can we draw from all of this? Number one, the need to ponder the reality of grace in your life. Hear the personal pronouns of Yancey's definition. There is nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. There is nothing I can do to make God love me any less. I invite you to ponder that. Spend some time with that. Let it deeply embrace your soul in this Lenten season. The second thing to ponder, it is never too late. As long as your heart beats, your lungs function, and your brain works, you can still come to Jesus. It is never too late. You don't need to be baptized. Although if you can be, that's good. It's obedient. You don't need to be at the table. Although if you can be, it's good. It's obedient. You don't need to give a profession of faith statement. Although if you can, that would be good. But it is never too late. The reality of coming to Jesus at the last moment is a reality which he allows. But while this thief knew his last moment was coming, we don't know whether I'll be killed in a car accident on the way home to Chilliwack this morning. Today is the day of salvation. It is never too late. Third thing to ponder, the power of the word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we often think, oh yeah, well, we'll let the professionals and the skilled say it and do it, because they've got the words all polished and done. But the power of conversion is not in your hands or mine. That is God's work. So speak the word as humbly yet as clearly as you can. I'm always reminded in this context by the testimony of Karl Barth, who was a theologian of the last century, who wrote a lot of books. I mean, his shelf would have been that long of books that he himself had authored. And he was at the University of Chicago Divinity School one time, and somebody asked him, could you summarize what you've written? Oh, yeah, he says, no problem. Jesus loves me. This I know. 
For the Bible tells me so. Use the word. Speak the word. And finally, be truthful. This thief on the cross had denied his reality, his fear of God for so long until finally he heard the word of forgiveness and thought, maybe that can apply to me. Last week, Pastor Bert, I thought was really interesting when I listened to it. Pastor Bert said, you know, there is this adverb of time. Then he went on and saying, then Jesus said, then Jesus said. And I think it applies here. This man on the cross heard, heard this word, Father, forgive them. And then he came to this conclusion. There's hope. There's hope for me because Jesus is here. And he is who the sign says he is. He's the king of the Jews. And in his kingdom, there is space, even for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word, as ancient and old as it is, and for its power to separate bone from marrow, and to separate us from our sin, and to set us free in Christ. Thank you for this testimony of this man on the cross. But thank you most of all for the approach of Jesus and his word of grace that sets us free. Help us to ponder the fact that we are new creations because of your love and mercy. So hear our prayer and receive our thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.